This is episode 125, part B of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast, continued part two of the reading of Yakli Way of Knowledge by Carlos Castaneda. I did edit out about 30 minutes from the beginning. I let the intro play for like the first eight minutes or whatever, and then I edited out about a half hour. So the full link for the YouTube reading, the book, full book, the two and a half hours will be in alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. Go to the episode 125 and you'll see the link right there where you can play the whole YouTube audiobook, which is two and a half hours. So check it. I played for a moment with the perception of depth by moving my head from one side to the other, focusing each eye in turn on the pole and then on the background. According to my way of judging depth, the pole was unmistakably before me, possibly three feet away. Stretching out my arms to protect my head, I charged with all my strength. The sensation was the same. I went through the pole. This time I went all the way to the floor. I stood up again, and standing up was perhaps the most unusual of all the acts I performed that night. I thought myself up. In order to get up, I did not use my muscles and skeletal frame in the way I am accustomed to doing, because I no longer had control over them. I knew it the instant I hit the ground. But my curiosity about the pole was so strong, I thought myself up in a kind of reflex action, and before I fully realized I could not move, I was up. I called to Don Juan for help. At one moment I yelled frantically at the top of my voice, but Don Juan did not move. He kept on looking at me, sideways, as though he didn't want to turn his head to face me fully. I took a step toward him, but instead of moving forward, I staggered backward and fell against the wall. I knew I had rammed against it with my back, yet it did not feel hard. I was completely suspended in a soft, spongy substance. It was the wall. My arms were stretched out laterally, and slowly my whole body seemed to sink into the wall. I could only look forward into the room. Don Juan was still watching me, but he made no move to help me. I made a supreme effort to jerk my body out of the wall, but it only sank deeper and deeper. In the midst of indescribable terror, I felt that the spongy wall was closing in on my face. I tried to shut my eyes, but they were fixed open. I don't remember what else happened. Suddenly, Don Juan was in front of me a short distance away. We were in the other room. I saw his table and the dirt stove with the fire burning, and with the corner of my eye I distinguished the fence outside the house. I could see everything very clearly. Don Juan had brought the kerosene lantern and hung it from the beam in the middle of the room. I tried to look in a different direction, but my eyes were set to see only straight forward. I couldn't distinguish or feel any part of my body. My breathing was undetectable, but my thoughts were extremely lucid. I was clearly aware of whatever was taking place in front of me. Don Juan walked toward me and my clarity of mind ended. Something seemed to stop inside me. There were no more thoughts. I saw Don Juan coming and I hated him. I wanted to tear him apart. I could have killed him then, but I could not move. At first I vaguely sensed a pressure on my head, but it also disappeared. There was only one thing left, an overwhelming anger at Don Juan. I saw him only a few inches from me. I wanted to claw him apart. I felt I was groaning. Something in me began to convulse. I heard Don Juan talking to me. His voice was soft and soothing, and I felt infinitely pleasing. He came even closer and started to recite a Spanish lullaby. A warmth pervaded me. It was a warmth of heart and feelings. Don Juan's words were a distant echo. They recalled the forgotten memories of childhood. The resentment changed into a longing, a joyous affection for Don Juan. He said I must struggle not to fall asleep, that I no longer had a body and was free to turn into anything I wanted. Either I moved forward or he came closer to me. His hands were almost on my face, on my eyes, although I did not feel them. Get inside my chest, I heard him say. I felt I was engulfing him. It was the same sensation of the sponginess of the wall. Then I could hear only his voice commanding me to look and see. I could not distinguish him any more. My eyes were apparently open, for I saw flashes of light on a red field. It was as though I was looking at a light through my closed eyelids. Then my thoughts were turned on again. They came back in a fast barrage of images, faces, scenery. Scenes without any coherence popped up and disappeared. It was like a fast dream in which images overlap and change. Then the thoughts began to diminish in number and intensity, and soon they were gone again. 
there was only an awareness of affection, of being happy. I couldn't distinguish any shapes or light. All of a sudden I was pulled up. I distinctly felt I was being lifted, and I was free, moving with tremendous lightness and speed in water or air. I swam like an eel. I contorted and twisted and soared up and down at will. I felt a cold wind blowing all around me, and I began to float like a feather, back and forth, down and down and down. Saturday, December 28, 1963 I woke up yesterday late in the afternoon. Don Juan told me I had slept peacefully for nearly two days. I had a splitting headache. I drank some water and got sick. I felt tired, extremely tired, and after eating I went back to sleep. Today I felt perfectly relaxed again. Don Juan and I talked about my experience with the little smoke. Thinking that he wanted me to tell the whole story the way I always did, I began to describe my impressions, but he stopped me and said it was not necessary. He told me I had not really done anything, and that I had fallen asleep right away so there was nothing to talk about. Well, how about the way I felt? Isn't that important at all, I insisted? No, not with the smoke. Later on, when you learn how to travel, we'll talk. When you learn how to get into things. Does one really get into things? Don't you remember? You went into and through that wall. I think I really went out of my mind. No, you didn't. I really felt I had lost my body, Don Juan. You did. But you saw me as I am now, didn't you? No, you were not as you are now. True, I admit that, but I had my body, didn't I, although I couldn't feel it. No, goddammit, you did not have a body like the body you have today. Well, what happened to my body, then? I thought you understood. The little smoke took your body. But where did it go? Well, how in the hell do you expect me to know that? It was useless to persist in trying to get a rational explanation. I told him I did not want to argue or to ask stupid questions, but if I accepted the idea that it was possible to lose my body, I would lose all my rationality. He said that I was exaggerating, as usual, and that I did not, nor was I going to, lose anything because of the little smoke. Tuesday, January 28, 1964 I asked Don Juan again to tell me about my appearance. I wanted to know how I looked, for the image of a bodiless being he had planted in my mind was understandably unbearable. He said that to tell the truth he was afraid to look at me. He felt the same way his benefactor must have felt when he saw Don Juan smoking for the first time. Well, why were you afraid? Was I that frightening? I asked. I had never seen anyone smoking before. Didn't you see your benefactor smoke? No. You've never seen even yourself? How could I? You could smoke in front of a mirror. He did not answer, but stared at me and shook his head. What would happen if I smoked in front of a camera and took a picture of myself? I don't know. The smoke would probably turn against you. But I suppose you find it so harmless you feel you can play with it. My last encounter with Mescalito was a cluster of four sessions which took place within four consecutive days. Don Juan called this long session a mitote. It was a peyote ceremony for peyoteros and apprentices. There were two older men about Don Juan's age, one of whom was the leader, and five younger men, including myself. The ceremony took place in the state of Chihuahua, Mexico, near the Texas border. It consisted of singing and of ingesting peyote during the night. In the daytime, women attendants who stayed outside the confines of the ceremony site supplied each man with water, and only a token of ritual food was consumed each day. Saturday, September 12, 1964 During the first night of the ceremony, Thursday, September 3rd, I took eight peyote buttons. They had no effect on me, or if they did, it was a very slight one. I kept my eyes closed most of the night. I felt much better that way. I did not fall asleep, nor was I tired. At the very end of the session the singing became extraordinary. For a brief moment I felt uplifted and wanted to weep, but as the song ended the feeling vanished. At sundown on Friday, September 4th, the second session began. The leader sang his peyote song, and the cycle of songs and intake of peyote buttons began once again. It ended in the morning with each man singing his own song, in unison with the others. It must have been toward the end of the session that the singing was greatly accelerated, with everybody singing at once. I perceived that something or somebody outside the house wanted to come in, 
I couldn't tell whether the singing was done to prevent it from bursting in or to lure it inside. I was the only one who did not have a song. They all seemed to look at me questioningly, especially the young men. I grew embarrassed and closed my eyes. Suddenly everything vanished or crumbled, and there emerged in its place the man-like figure of Mescalito I had seen two years before. He was sitting some distance away with his profile toward me. I stared fixedly at him, but he did not look at me. Not once did he turn. I believed I was doing something wrong, something that kept him away. I got up and walked toward him to ask about it, but the act of moving dispelled the image. It began to fade, and the figures of the men I was with were superimposed upon it. Again I heard the loud, frantic singing. I went into the nearby bushes and walked for a while. Everything stood out very clearly. I noticed I was seeing in the darkness, but it mattered very little this time. The important point was, why did Mescalito avoid me? I returned to join the group, and as I was about to enter the house I heard a heavy rumbling and felt a tremor. The ground shook. It was the same noise I had heard in the Peyote Valley two years before. I ran into the bushes again. I knew that Mescalito was there and that I was going to find him, but he was not there. I waited until morning and joined the others just before the session ended. The usual procedure was repeated on the third day. I was not tired, but I slept during the afternoon. In the evening of Saturday, September 5th, the old man sang his peyote song to start the cycle once more. During this session I chewed only one button and did not listen to any of the songs, nor did I pay attention to anything that went on. From the first moment my whole being was uniquely concentrated on one point. I knew something terribly important for my well-being was missing. While the men sang, I asked Mascalito in a loud voice to teach me a song. My pleading mingled with the men's loud singing. Immediately I heard a song in my ears. I turned around and sat with my back to the group and listened. I heard the words and the tune over and over, and I repeated them until I had learned the whole song. It was a long song in Spanish. Then I sang it to the group several times, and soon afterwards a new song came to my ears. By morning I had sung both songs countless times. I felt I had been renewed, fortified. After the water was given to us, Don Juan gave me a bag, and we all went into the hills. It was a long, strenuous walk to a low mesa. There I saw several peyote plants, but for some reason I did not want to look at them. After we had crossed the mesa, the group broke up. Don Juan and I walked back, collecting peyote buttons, just as we had done the first time I helped him. We returned in the late afternoon of Sunday, September 6th. In the evening the leader opened the cycle again. Nobody had said a word, but I knew perfectly well it was the last gathering. This time the old man sang a new song. A sack with fresh peyote buttons was passed around. This was the first time I had tasted a fresh button. It was pulpy but hard to chew. It resembled a hard green fruit and was sharper and more bitter than the dried buttons. Personally, I found the fresh peyote infinitely more alive. I chewed fourteen buttons. I counted them carefully. I did not finish the last one, for I heard the familiar rumble that marked the presence of Mescalito. Everybody sang frantically, and I knew that Don Juan and everybody else had actually heard the noise. I refused to think that their reaction was a response to a cue given by one of them merely to deceive me. At that moment I felt a great surge of wisdom engulfing me. A conjecture I had played with for three years turned then into a certainty. It had taken me three years to realize, or rather to find out, that whatever is contained in the cactus Lophophora Williamsi had nothing to do with me in order to exist as an entity. It existed by itself, out there at large. I knew it then. I sang feverishly until I could no longer voice the words. I felt as if my songs were inside my body, shaking me uncontrollably. I needed to go out and find Mescalito or I would explode. I walked toward the peyote field. I kept on singing my songs. I knew they were individually mine, the unquestionable proof of my singleness. I sensed each one of my steps. They resounded on the ground. Their echo produced the indescribable euphoria of being a man. Each one of the peyote plants on the field shone with a bluish, scintillating light. One plant had a very bright light. I sat in front of it and sang my songs to it. As I sang, Mescalito came out of the plant, the same man-like figure I had seen before. He looked at me. With great audacity for a person of my temperament, I sang to him. There was a sound of flutes or of wind a familiar musical vibration. 
He seemed to have said, as he said two years before, "'What do you want?' I spoke very loudly. I said that I knew there was something amiss in my life and in my actions, but I could not find out what it was. I begged him to tell me what was wrong with me, and also to tell me his name so that I could call him when I needed him. He looked at me, elongated his mouth like a trumpet until it reached my ear, and then told me his name. Suddenly I saw my own father standing in the middle of the peyote field. But the field had vanished, and the scene was my old home, the home of my childhood. My father and I were standing by a fig tree. I embraced my father and hurriedly began to tell him things I had never before been able to say. Every one of my thoughts was concise and to the point. It was as if we had no time, really, and I had to say everything at once. I said staggering things about my feelings toward him, things I would never have been able to voice under ordinary circumstances. My father did not speak. He just listened, and then was pulled or sucked away. I was alone again. I wept with remorse and sadness. I walked through the peyote field calling the name Mescalito had taught me. Something emerged from a strange star-like light on a peyote plant. It was a long, shiny object, a stick of light the size of a man. For a moment it illuminated the whole field with an intense yellowish or amber light. Then it lit up the whole sky above, creating a portentous, marvelous sight. I thought I would go blind if I kept on looking. I covered my eyes and I buried my head in my arms. I had a clear notion that Mescalito told me to eat one more peyote button. I thought, I can't do that because I have no knife to cut it. Eat one from the ground, he said to me in the same strange way. I lay on my stomach and chewed the top of a plant. It kindled me. It filled every corner of my body with warmth and directness. Everything was alive. Everything had exquisite and intricate detail, and yet everything was so simple. I was everywhere. I could see up and down and around, all at the same time. This particular feeling lasted long enough for me to become aware of it. Then it changed into an oppressive terror, terror that did not come upon me abruptly, but somehow swiftly. At first, my marvelous world of silence was jolted by sharp noises, but I was not concerned. Then the noises became louder and were uninterrupted, as if they were closing in on me. And gradually I lost the feeling of floating in a world undifferentiated, indifferent, and beautiful. The noises became gigantic steps. Something enormous was breathing and moving around me. I believed it was hunting for me. I ran and hid under a boulder and tried to determine from there what was following me. Slowly I began to regain my usual sensorial processes. I lay on my stomach with my chin on my folded arm. The peyote plant in front of me began to light up again, and before I could move my eyes the long light emerged again. It hovered over me. I sat up. The light touched my whole body with quiet strength and then rolled away out of sight. I ran all the way to the place where the other men were. We all returned to town. Don Juan and I stayed one more day with Don Roberto, the peyote leader. I slept all the time we were there. When we were about to leave, the young men who had taken part in the peyote sessions came up to me. They embraced me, one by one, and laughed shyly. Each one of them introduced himself. I talked with them for hours about everything except the peyote meetings. Don Juan said it was time to leave. The young men embraced me again. Come back, one of them said. We are already waiting for you, another one added. I drove away slowly, trying to see the older men, but none of them was there. Thursday, September 10, 1964 To tell Don Juan about an experience always forced me to recall it step by step to the best of my ability. This seemed to be the only way to remember everything. Today I told him the details of my last encounter with Mescalito. He listened to my story attentively up to the point when Mescalito told me his name. Don Juan interrupted me there. You're on your own now, he said. The protector has accepted you. I'll be of very little help to you from now on. You don't have to tell me anything more about your relationship with him. You know his name now, and neither his name nor his dealings with you should ever be mentioned to a living being. I insisted that I wanted to tell him all the details of the experience because it made no sense to me. I told him I needed his assistance to interpret what I had seen. He said I could do that by myself, that it was better for me to start thinking on my own. Friday, September 11, 1964 
Again, I insisted upon having Don Juan interpret my visionary experiences. He stalled for a while. Then he spoke as if we had already been carrying on a conversation about Mescalito. You asked him to tell you what's wrong with you, and he gave you the full picture. There can be no mistake. You can't claim you did not understand. He said, You think there are two worlds for you, two paths, but there's only one. The protector showed you this with unbelievable clarity. The only world available to you is the world of men, and that world you cannot choose to leave. You are a man. The protector showed you the world of happiness, where there's no difference between things, because there is no one there to ask about the difference. But that is not the world of men. The protector shook you out of it, and showed you how a man thinks and fights. That is the world of man. And to be a man is to be condemned to that world. You have the vanity to believe you live in two worlds, but that is only your vanity. There is but one single world for us. We are men, and must follow the world of men contentedly. I believe that was the lesson. Don Juan seemed to want me to work with the devil's weed as much as possible. This stand was incongruous with his alleged dislike of the power. He explained himself by saying that the time when I had to smoke again was near, and by then I ought to have developed a better knowledge of the power of the devil's weed. He suggested repeatedly that I should at least test the devil's weed with one more sorcery with the lizards. I played with the idea for a long time. Don Juan's urgency increased dramatically until I felt obliged to heed his demand, and one day I made up my mind to divine about some stolen objects. Monday, December 28, 1964. I followed all the instructions meticulously. I drank the potion and waited a while. I felt nothing out of the ordinary. I began rubbing the paste on my temples. I applied it twenty-five times. Then, quite mechanically, as if I were absent-minded, I spread it repeatedly all over my forehead. I realized my mistake and hurriedly wiped the paste off. My forehead was sweaty. I became feverish. Intense anxiety gripped me, for Don Juan had strongly advised me not to rub the paste on my forehead. The fear changed into a feeling of absolute loneliness, a feeling of being doomed. I was there by myself. If something harmful was going to happen to me, there was no one there to help me. I wanted to run away. I had an alarming sensation of indecision, of not knowing what to do. A flood of thoughts rushed into my mind, flashing with extraordinary speed. I noticed that they were rather strange thoughts. That is, they were strange in the sense that they seemed to come in a different way from ordinary thoughts. I am familiar with the way I think. My thoughts have a definite order that is my own, and any deviation is noticeable. One of the alien thoughts was about a statement made by an author. It was, I vaguely remember, more like a voice or something said somewhere in the background. It happened so fast that it startled me. I paused to consider it, but it changed into an ordinary thought. I was certain I had read the statement, but I could not think of the author's name. I suddenly remembered that it was Alfred Krober. Then another alien thought popped up and said that it was not Krober, but Georg Simmel who had made the statement. I insisted that it was Krober, and the next thing I knew I was in the midst of an argument with myself and had forgotten about my feeling of being doomed. My eyelids were heavy, as though I had taken sleeping pills. Then quite suddenly I woke up, or rather I clearly felt that I had. My first thought was about the time of day. I looked around. I was not in front of the Datura plant. Nonchalantly I accepted the fact that I was undergoing another divinatory experience. It was 12.35 by a clock above my head. I knew it was afternoon. I saw a young man carrying a stack of papers. I was nearly touching him. I saw the veins of his neck pulsating and heard the fast beating of his heart. I had become absorbed in what I was seeing and had not been aware so far of the quality of my thoughts. Then I heard a voice in my ear describing the scene, and I realized that the voice was the alien thought in my mind. I became so engrossed in listening that the scene lost its visual interest for me. I heard the voice at my right ear above my shoulder. It actually created the scene by describing it. But it obeyed my will, because I could stop at any time and examine the details of what it said at my leisure. I heard, saw the entire sequence of the young man's actions— the voice went on explaining them in minute detail, but somehow the action was not important. The little voice was the extraordinary issue. Three times during the course of the experience I tried to turn around to see who was talking. I tried to turn my head all the way to the right or just whirl around unexpectedly to see if somebody was there, but every time I did it my vision became blurry. 
I thought, the reason I cannot turn around is because the scene is not in the realm of ordinary reality, and that thought was my own. From then on I concentrated my attention on the voice alone. It seemed to come from my shoulder. It was perfectly clear, although it was a small voice. It was, however, not a child's voice or a falsetto voice, but a miniature man's voice. It wasn't my voice either. I presumed it was English that I heard. Whenever I tried deliberately to trap the voice, it subsided altogether or became vague and the scene faded. I thought of a simile. The voice was like the image created by dust particles in the eyelashes, or the blood vessels in the cornea of the eye, a worm-like shape that can be seen as long as one is not looking at it directly. But the moment one tries to look at it, it shifts out of sight with the movement of the eyeball. I became totally disinterested in the action. As I listened, the voice became more complex. What I thought to be a voice was more like something whispering thoughts into my ear, but that was not accurate. Something was thinking for me. The thoughts were outside myself. I knew that was so because I could hold my own thoughts and the thoughts of the other at the same time. At one point the voice created scenes acted out by the young man, which had nothing to do with my original question about the lost objects. The young man performed very complex acts. The action had become important again, and I paid no more attention to the voice. I began to lose patience. I wanted to stop. How can I end this, I thought. The voice in my ear said I should go back to the canyon. I asked how, and the voice answered that I should think of my plant. I thought of my plant. Usually I sat in front of it. I had done it so many times that it was quite easy for me to visualize it. I believed that seeing it as I did at that moment was another hallucination, but the voice said I was back. I strained to listen. There was only silence. The Datura plant in front of me seemed as real as everything else I had seen, but I could touch it. I could move around. Thursday, December 24, 1964 Today I narrated the whole experience to Don Juan. As usual, he listened without interrupting me. At the end, we had the following dialogue. You did something very wrong. I know it. It was a very stupid error, an accident. There are no accidents when you deal with the devil's weed. I told you she would test you all the way. As I see it, either you are very strong or the weed really likes you. The center of the forehead is only for the great brujos who know how to handle her power. That is why your act is truly astonishing to me. You had no steps to follow, and we must follow certain steps, because it is in the steps where man finds strength. Without them we are nothing. We remained silent for hours. He seemed to be immersed in very deep deliberation. Saturday, December 26, 1964 Don Juan asked me if I had looked for the lizards. I told him I had, but that I couldn't find them. I asked him what would have happened if one of the lizards had died while I was holding it. He said the death of a lizard would be an unfortunate event. If the lizard with the sewed-up mouth had died at any time, there would have been no sense in pursuing the sorcery, he said. It would also have meant that the lizards had withdrawn their friendship, and I would have had to give up learning about the devil's weed for a long time. How long, Don Juan, I asked. Two years or more. What would have happened if the other lizard had died? If the second lizard had died, you would have been in real danger. You would have been alone without a guide. If she died before you started the sorcery, you could have stopped it. But if you had stopped it, you would also have to give up the devil's weed for good. If the lizard had died while she was on your shoulder, after you had begun the sorcery, you would have had to go ahead with it, and that would truly have been madness. Why would it have been madness? Because under such conditions nothing makes sense. You are alone without a guide, seeing terrifying, nonsensical things. What do you mean by nonsensical things? Things we see by ourselves. Things we see when we have no direction. It means the devil's weed is trying to get rid of you, finally pushing you away. Do you know anyone who ever experienced that? Yes, I did. Without the wisdom of the lizards, I went mad. What what did you see, Don Juan? A bunch of nonsense. What else could I have seen without direction? Monday, December 28, 1964 You told me, Don Juan, that the devil's weed tests men. What did you mean by that? The devil's weed is like a woman, and like a woman she flatters men. She sets traps for them at every turn. She did it to you when she forced you to rub the paste on your forehead. 
She'll try it again, and you'll probably fall for it. I warn you against it. Don't take her with passion. The devil's weed is only one path to the secrets of a man of knowledge. There are other paths. But her trap is to make you believe that hers is the only way. I say it is useless to waste your life on one path, especially if that path has no heart. But how do you know when a path has no heart, Don Juan? Before you embark on it, you ask the question, Does this path have a heart? If the answer is no, you will know it, and then you must choose another path. But how will I know for sure whether a path has a heart or not? Anybody would know that. The trouble is nobody asks the question. And when a man finally realizes that he has taken a path without a heart, the path is ready to kill him. At that point, very few men can stop to deliberate and leave the path. How should I proceed to ask the question properly, Don Juan? Just ask it. I mean, is there a proper method so I would not lie to myself and believe the answer is yes when it's really no? Why would you lie? Well, perhaps because at the moment the path is pleasant and enjoyable. That is nonsense. A path without a heart is never enjoyable. You have to work hard even to take it. On the other hand, a path with heart is easy. It does not make you work at liking it. Don Juan suddenly changed the direction of the conversation and bluntly confronted me with the idea that I liked the devil's weed. I had to admit that I had at least a preference for it. He asked me how I felt about his ally, the smoke, and I had to tell him that just the idea of it frightened me out of my senses. I've told you that to choose a path you must be free from fear and ambition. But the smoke blinds you with fear, and the devil's weed blinds you with ambition. I argued that one needs ambition even to embark on any path, and that his statement that one had to be free from ambition did not make sense. A person has to have ambition in order to learn. The desire to learn is not ambition, he said. It is our lot as men to want to know. But to seek the devil's weed is to bid for power. And that is ambition, because you are not bidding to know. Don't let the devil's weed blind you. She's hooked you already. She entices men and gives them a sense of power. She makes them feel they can do things that no ordinary man can. But that is her trap. And the next thing, the path without a heart, will turn against men and destroy them. It does not take much to die. And to seek death is to seek nothing. In the month of December 1964, Don Juan and I went to collect the different plants needed to make the smoking mixture. It was the fourth cycle. Don Juan merely supervised my actions. He urged me to take time, to watch and to deliberate before I picked any of the plants. As soon as the ingredients had been gathered and stored, he prompted me to meet with his ally again. Wednesday, January 27, 1965 on Tuesday, January 19th, I smoked again the hallucinogenic mixture. I had told Don Juan I felt very apprehensive about the smoke and that it frightened me. He said I had to try it again to evaluate it with justice. We walked into his room. It was almost two o'clock in the afternoon. He brought out the pipe. I got the charcoals, then we sat facing each other. He said he was going to warm up the pipe and awaken her, and if I watched carefully I would see how she glowed. He put the pipe to his lips three or four times and sucked through it. He rubbed it tenderly. Suddenly he nodded, almost imperceptibly, to signal me to look at the pipe's awakening. I looked, but I couldn't see it. He handed the pipe to me. I filled the bowl with my own mixture and then picked a burning charcoal with a pair of tweezers I had made from a wooden clothespin and had been saving for this occasion. Don Juan looked at my tweezers and began to laugh. I vacillated for a moment, and the charcoal stuck to the tweezers. I was afraid to tap them against the pipe bowl, and I had to spit on the charcoal to put it out. Don Juan turned his head away and covered his face with his arm. His body shook. For a moment I thought he was crying, but he was laughing silently. The action was interrupted for a long time. Then he swiftly picked up a charcoal himself, put it in the bowl, and ordered me to smoke. I counted twenty inhalations, and then the count did not matter any longer. I began to sweat. Don Juan looked at me fixedly and told me not to be afraid and to do exactly as he said. I tried to say all right, but instead I made a weird howling sound. It went on resounding after I had closed my mouth. The sound startled Don Juan, who had another attack of laughter. I wanted to say yes with my head, but I couldn't move. Don Juan opened my hands gently and took the pipe away. 
He ordered me to lie down on the floor, but not to fall asleep. I did not experience fear or unpleasantness during the state itself, nor was I sick upon awakening the next day. The only thing out of the ordinary was that I could not think clearly for some time after waking up. Then gradually, in a period of four or five hours, I became myself again. Wednesday, January 20, 1965 Don Juan did not talk about my experience, nor did he ask me to relate it to him. His sole comment was that I had fallen asleep too soon. The only way to stay awake is to become a bird or a cricket or something of the sort, he said. Sunday, February 7, 1965 My second attempt in this, the fourth year of the cycle with the smoke, took place about midday on Sunday, January 31st. I woke up the following day in the early evening. I had the sensation of possessing an unusual power to recollect whatever Don Juan had said to me during the experience. I tried to narrate my experience to Don Juan. He said I had done nothing important. I mentioned that I could remember everything that had happened, but he did not want to hear about it. He had said that my body was disappearing and only my head was going to remain, and in such a condition the only way to stay awake and move around was by becoming a crow. He had commanded me to make an effort to wink adding that whenever I was capable of winking, I would be ready to proceed. He said that my mouth and nose were going to grow between my eyes until I had a strong beak. He said that crows see straight to the side, and commanded me to turn my head and look at him with one eye. He said that if I wanted to change and look with the other eye, I had to shake my beak down, and that that movement would make me look through the other eye. I had no difficulty whatsoever eliciting the corresponding sensation to each one of his commands. I had the perception of growing birds' legs, which were weak and wobbly at first. I felt a tail coming out of the back of my neck, and wings out of my cheekbones. The wings were folded deeply. I felt them coming out by degrees. The process was hard, but not painful. Then I winked my head down to the size of a crow. But the most astonishing effect was accomplished with my eyes, my bird's sight. My eyes actually were capable of having a full view to the side. I could wink one eye at a time and shift the focusing from one eye to the other. Sunday, March 28, 1965 On Thursday, March 18th, I smoked again the hallucinogenic mixture. When I awakened, I was lying on my back at the bottom of a shallow irrigation ditch, immersed in water up to my chin. Someone was holding my head up. It was Don Juan. After a while, I was completely awake and got out of the water. You must tell me all you saw, Don Juan said when we got to his house. He also said he had been trying to bring me back for three days and had had a very difficult time doing it. I made numerous attempts to describe what I had seen, but I could not concentrate. Later on, during the early evening, I felt I was ready to talk with Don Juan, and I began to tell him what I remembered from the time I had fallen on my side, but he did not want to hear about it. He said the only interesting part was what I saw and did after he tossed me into the air and I flew away. All I could remember was a series of dreamlike images or scenes. They had no sequential order. I had the impression that each one of them was like an isolated bubble, floating into focus and then moving away. They were not, however, merely scenes to look at. I was inside them. I took part in them. The last scene I remembered was three silvery birds— they radiated a shiny metallic light, almost like stainless steel, but intense and moving and alive. I liked them. We flew together. Don Juan did not make any comments on my recounting. The following conversation took place the next day after the recounting of my experience. Don Juan said, It does not take much to become a crow. You did it, and now you will always be one. What happened after I became a crow, Don Juan? Did I fly for three days? No, you came back at nightfall, as I had told you to. But how did I come back? You were very tired and went to sleep, that's all. I mean, did I fly back? I've already told you. You obeyed me and came back to the house. But don't concern yourself with that matter. It's of no importance. What is important, then? In your whole trip there was only one thing of great value. The silvery birds. Don Juan demanded that I think about them, about their number, direction of flight, if they had made any noise, at what time of day they came. He said, All this will not mean a damn. It will be only a mad dream unless you remember correctly. I strained myself to recollect, but I could not. Saturday, April 3, 1965 
Days passed, and slowly I was able to recall images of the silvery birds. From this Don Juan was able to reconstruct the event and to decipher its meaning. They will call you, he said, and as they fly above your head, they will become silvery white. You will see them shining against the sky, and it will mean your time is up. It will mean you are going to die and become a crow yourself. What if I see them during the morning? You won't see them in the morning. But crows fly all day, not your emissaries, you fool. Well, how about your emissaries, Don Juan? Mine will come in the morning. There will also be three of them. My benefactor told me that one could shout them back to black if one does not want to die. But now I know it can't be done. My benefactor was given to shouting and to all the clatter and violence of the devil's weed. I know the smoke is different because he has no passion. He's fair. When your silvery emissaries come for you, there's no need to shout at them. Just fly with them as you have already done. After they have collected you, they will reverse directions, and there will be four of them flying away. Saturday, April 10, 1965 I had been experiencing brief flashes of disassociation or shallow states of non-ordinary reality. Today I discussed this condition with Don Juan. I asked for advice. He seemed to be unconcerned and told me to disregard the experiences because they were meaningless, or rather valueless. He reminded me again that in order to partake of the smoke, it was necessary to lead a strong, quiet life. At this point I asked Don Juan the unavoidable question, Did I really become a crow? I mean, would anyone seeing me have thought I was an ordinary crow? No. You can't think that way when dealing with the power of the Allies. Such questions make no sense. It takes a very long time to learn to be a proper crow, he said. But you did not change, nor did you stop being a man. There's something else. Well, can you tell me what the something else is, Don Juan? Perhaps by now you know it yourself. Maybe if you were not so afraid of becoming mad or of losing your body, you would understand this marvelous secret. But perhaps you must wait until you lose your fear to understand what I mean. The last event I recorded in my field notes took place in September 1965. It was the last of Don Juan's teachings. I called it a special state of non-ordinary reality, because it was not the product of any of the plants I had used before. It seemed that Don Juan elicited it by means of a careful manipulation of cues about himself. That is to say, he behaved in front of me in so skillful a manner that he created the clear and sustained impression that he was not really himself, but someone impersonating him. As a result, I experienced a profound sense of conflict. I wanted to believe it was Don Juan, and yet I could not be sure of it. The concomitant of the conflict was a conscious terror, so acute that it impaired my health for several weeks. Afterward, I thought it would have been wise to end my apprenticeship then. I have never been a participant since that time, yet Don Juan has not ceased to consider me an apprentice. He has regarded my withdrawal only as a necessary period of recapitulation, another step of learning, which may last indefinitely. Since that time, however, he has never expounded on his knowledge. Friday, October 29, 1965 On Thursday, September 30, 1965, I went to see Don Juan. The brief, shallow states of non-ordinary reality had been persisting in spite of my deliberate attempts to end them or slough them off as Don Juan had suggested. I felt that my condition was getting worse, for the duration of such states was increasing. My inability to shake it off produced a deep anxiety in me. Don Juan, after listening attentively to all the details, concluded that I was suffering from a loss of soul. I told him I had been having these hallucinations ever since the time I had smoked the mushrooms, but he insisted that they were a new development. He said that earlier I had been afraid and had just dreamed nonsensical things, but that now I was truly bewitched. Don Juan seemed to be overly preoccupied, a state that was quite unusual for him. This naturally increased my apprehension. He said he had no definite idea as to who had trapped my soul, but whoever it was intended without doubt to kill me or make me very ill. Then he gave me precise instructions about a fighting form, a specific bodily position to be maintained while I remained on my beneficial spot. 
I had to maintain this posture he called a form, una forma para pelear. I asked him what all that was for and whom I was going to fight. He replied that he was going away to see who had taken my soul and to find out if it was possible to get it back. In the meantime, I was supposed to stay on my spot until his return. The fighting form was actually a precaution, he said, in case something happened during his absence, and it had to be used if I was attacked. It consisted of clapping the calf and thigh of my right leg and stomping my left foot in a kind of dance I had to do while facing the attacker. He warned me that the form had to be adopted only in moments of extreme crisis, but so long as there was no danger in sight, I should simply sit cross-legged on my spot. Under circumstances of extreme danger, however, he said I could resort to one last means of defense, hurling an object at the enemy. He told me that ordinarily one hurls a power object, but since I did not possess any, I was forced to use any small rock that would fit into the palm of my right hand, a rock I could hold by pressing it against my palm with my thumb. He said that such a technique should be used only if one was indisputably in danger of losing one's life. The hurling of the object had to be accompanied by a war cry, a yell that had the property of directing the object to its mark. He emphatically recommended that I be careful and deliberate about the outcry and not use it at random, but only under severe conditions of seriousness. I asked what he meant by severe conditions of seriousness. He said that the outcry or war cry was something that remained with a man for the duration of his life. Thus it had to be good from the very beginning— and the only way to start it correctly was by holding back one's natural fear and haste until one was absolutely filled with power, and then the yell would burst out with direction and power. He said these were the conditions of seriousness needed to launch the yell. I asked him to explain about the power that was supposed to fill one before the outcry. He said that was something that ran through the body coming from the ground where one stood. It was a kind of power that emanated from the beneficial spot, to be exact. It was a force that pushed the yell out. If such a force was properly managed, the battle cry would be perfect. I asked him again if he thought something was going to happen to me. He said he knew nothing about it, and admonished me dramatically to stay glued to my spot for as long as it was necessary, because that was the only protection I had against anything that might happen. I began to feel frightened. I begged him to be more specific. He said all he knew was that I should not move under any circumstances. I was not to go into the house or into the bush. Above all, he said, I should not utter a single word, not even to him. He said I could sing my mescalito songs if I became too frightened, and then he added that I knew already too much about these matters to have to be warned like a child about the importance of doing everything correctly. His admonitions produced a state of profound anguish in me. I was sure he was expecting something to happen. I asked him why he recommended that I sing the mescalito songs, and what he believed was going to frighten me. He laughed and said I might become afraid of being alone. He walked into the house and closed the door behind him. I looked at my watch. It was 7 p.m. I sat quietly for a long time. There were no sounds coming from Don Juan's room. Everything was quiet. It was windy. I thought of making a dash from my car to get my windbreaker, but I did not dare to go against Don Juan's advice. I was not sleepy but tired. The cold wind made it impossible for me to rest. Four hours later I heard Don Juan walking around the house. I thought he might have left through the back to urinate in the bushes. Then he called me loudly. "'Hey, boy! Hey, boy, I need you here,' he said. I nearly got up to go to him. It was his voice, but not his tone or his usual words. Don Juan had never called me, "'Hey, boy,' so I stayed where I was. A chill went up my back. He began to yell again, using the same or a similar phrase. I heard him walking around the back of his house. He stumbled on a woodpile as if he did not know it was there. Then he came to the porch and sat next to the door with his back against the wall. He seemed heavier than usual. His movements were not slow or clumsy, just heavier. He plunked down on the floor instead of sliding nimbly as he usually did. Besides, that was not his spot— and Don Juan would never, under any circumstances, sit anywhere else. Then he talked to me again. He asked me why I refused to come when he needed me. He talked loudly. I did not want to look at him, and yet I had a compulsive urge to watch him. He began to swing slightly from side to side. I changed my position, adopted the fighting form he had taught me, and turned to face him. 
My muscles were stiff and strangely tense. I do not know what prompted me to adopt the fighting form, but perhaps it was because I believed Don Juan was deliberately trying to scare me by creating the impression that the person I saw was not really himself. I felt he was very careful about doing the unaccustomed in order to establish doubt in my mind. I was afraid, but still I felt I was above it all, because I was actually taking stock of and analyzing the entire sequence. At that point Don Juan got up. His motions were utterly unfamiliar. He brought his arms in front of his body and pushed himself up, lifting his backside first. Then he grabbed the door and straightened out the top part of his body. I was amazed about how deeply familiar I was with his movements and what an awesome feeling he had created by letting me see a Don Juan who did not move like Don Juan. He took a couple of steps toward me. He held the lower part of his back with both hands as if he were trying to straighten up or as if he were in pain. He whined and puffed. His nose seemed to be stuffed up. He said he was going to take me with him and ordered me to get up and follow him. He walked toward the west side of the house. I shifted my position to face him. He turned to me. I did not move from my spot. I was glued to it. He bellowed, Hey, boy, I told you to come with me. If you don't come, I'll drag you. He walked toward me. I began beating my calf and thigh and dancing fast. He got to the edge of the porch in front of me and nearly touched me. Frantically, I prepared my body to adopt the hurling position, but he changed directions and moved away from me, toward the bushes to my left. At one moment as he was walking away, he turned suddenly, but I was facing him. He went out of sight. I retained the fighting posture for a while longer, but as I did not see him any more, I sat cross-legged again with my back to the rock. By then I was really frightened. I wanted to run away, yet that thought terrified me even more. I felt I would have been completely at his mercy if he had caught me on the way to my car. I began to sing the peyote songs I knew, but somehow I felt they were impotent there. They served only as a pacifier, yet they soothed me. I sang them over and over. About 2.45 a.m. I heard a noise inside the house. I immediately changed my position. The door was flung open and Don Juan stumbled out. He was gasping and holding his throat. He knelt in front of me and moaned. He asked me in a high, whining voice to come and help him. Then he bellowed again and ordered me to come. He made gargling sounds. He pleaded with me to come and help him because something was choking him. He crawled on his hands and knees until he was perhaps four feet away. He extended his hands to me. He said, Come here. Then he got up. His arms were extended toward me. He seemed ready to grab me. I stomped my foot on the ground and clapped my calf and thigh. I was beside myself with fear. He stopped and walked to the side of the house and into the bushes. I shifted my position to face him. Then I sat down again. I did not want to sing any more. My energy seemed to be waning. My entire body ached. All my muscles were stiff and painfully contracted. I did not know what to think. I could not make up my mind whether to be angry at Don Juan or not. I thought of jumping him, but somehow I knew he would have cut me down like a bug. I really wanted to cry. I experienced a profound despair. The thought that Don Juan was going all the way out to frighten me made me feel like weeping. I was incapable of finding a reason for his tremendous display of histrionics. His movements were so artful that I became confused. It was not as if he was trying to move like a woman. It was as if a woman was trying to move like Don Juan. I had the impression that she was really trying to walk and move with Don Juan's deliberation, but was too heavy and did not have the nimbleness of Don Juan. Whoever it was in front of me created the impression of being a younger, heavy woman trying to imitate the slow movements of an agile old man. These thoughts threw me into a state of panic. A cricket began to call loudly, very close to me. I noticed the richness of its tone. I fancied it to have a baritone voice. The call started to fade away. Suddenly my whole body jerked. I assumed the fighting position again and faced the direction from which the cricket's call had come. The sound was taking me away. It had begun to trap me before I realized it was only cricket-like. The sound got closer again. It became terribly loud. I started to sing my peyote songs louder and louder. Suddenly the cricket stopped. I immediately sat down but kept on singing. A moment later I saw the shape of a man running toward me from the direction opposite to that of the cricket's call. I clapped my hands on my thigh and calf and stomped vigorously, frantically. The shape went by very fast, almost touching me. It looked like a dog. I experienced so dreadful a fear that I was numb. I cannot recollect anything else I felt or thought.
The morning dew was refreshing. I felt better. Whatever the phenomenon was, it seemed to have withdrawn. It was 5.48 a.m. when Don Juan opened the door quietly and came out. He stretched his arms, yawning, and glanced at me. He took two steps toward me, prolonging his yawning. I saw his eyes looking through half-closed eyelids. I jumped up. I knew then that whoever or whatever was in front of me was not Don Juan. I took a small, sharp-edged rock from the ground. It was next to my right hand. I did not look at it. I just held it by pressing it with my thumb against my extended fingers. I adopted the form Don Juan had taught me. I felt a strange vigor filling me in a matter of seconds. Then I yelled and hurled the rock at him. I thought it was a magnificent outcry. At that moment I did not care whether I lived or died. I felt the cry was awesome in its potency. It was piercing and prolonged, and it actually directed my aim. The figure in front wobbled and shrieked and staggered to the side of the house and into the bushes again. It took me hours to calm down. I could not sit any more. I kept on trotting on the same place. I had to breathe through my mouth to take in enough air. At eleven a.m. Don Juan came out again. I was going to jump up, but the movements were his. He went directly to his spot and sat down in his usual familiar way. He looked at me and smiled. He was Don Juan. I went to him, and instead of being angry, I kissed his hand. I really believed then that he had not acted to create a dramatic effect, but that someone had impersonated him to cause me harm or to kill me. The conversation began with speculations about the identity of a female person who had allegedly taken my soul. Then Don Juan asked me to tell him about every detail of my experience. I narrated the whole sequence of events in a very deliberate manner. He laughed all the way as if it were a joke. When I had finished, he said, You did fine. You won the battle for your soul. But this matter is more serious than I thought. Your life wasn't worth two hoots last night. It is fortunate you learned something in the past. Had you not had a little training, you would be dead by now, because whoever you saw last night meant to finish you off. How is it possible, Don Juan, that she could take your form? Very simple. She is a diablera and has a good helper on the other side. But she was not too good in assuming my likeness, and you caught on to her trick. Is a helper on the other side the same as an ally? No. A helper is the aid of a diablero. A helper is a spirit that lives on the other side of the world and helps a diablero to cause sickness and pain. It helps him to kill. Can a diablero also have an ally, Don Juan? It is the diableros who have the allies. But before a diablero can tame an ally, he usually has a helper to aid him in his tasks. Well, how about the woman who took your form, Don Juan? Does she have only a helper and not an ally? I don't know whether she has an ally or not. Some people do not like the power of an ally and prefer a helper. To tame an ally is hard work. It's easier to get a helper on the other side. Do you think I could get a helper? To know that, you have to learn much more. We are again at the beginning, almost as on the first day you came over and asked me to tell you about Mescalito, and I could not because you would not have understood. That other side is the world of Diableros. I think it would be best to tell you my own feelings in the same way my benefactor told me his. He was a diablero and a warrior. His life was inclined toward the force and the violence of the world. But I am neither of them. That is my nature. You have seen my world from the start. As to showing you the world of my benefactor, I can only put you at the door, and you will have to decide for yourself. You will have to learn about it by your effort alone. I must admit now that I made a mistake. It is much better, I see now, to start the way I did myself. Then it is easier to realize how simple and yet how profound the difference is. A diablero is a diablero, and a warrior is a warrior. Or a man can be both. There are enough people who are both. But a man who only traverses the paths of life is everything. Today, I am neither a warrior nor a diablero. For me there is only the traveling on the paths that have a heart, on any path that may have a heart. There I travel, and the only worthwhile challenge for me is to traverse its full length, and there I travel, looking, looking, breathlessly. He paused. His face revealed a peculiar mood. He seemed to be unusually serious. I, 
I did not know what to ask or to say. He proceeded. The particular thing to learn is how to get to the crack between the worlds and how to enter the other world. There is a crack between the two worlds, the world of the Diableros and the world of living men. There is a place where the two worlds overlap. The crack is there. It opens and closes like a door in the wind. To get there, a man must exercise his will. He must, I should say, develop an indomitable desire for it, a single-minded dedication. But he must do it without the help of any power or any man. The man by himself must ponder and wish up to a moment in which his body is ready to undergo the journey. That moment is announced by prolonged shaking of the limbs and violent vomiting. The man usually cannot sleep or eat and wanes away. When the convulsions do not stop, the man is ready to go, and the crack between the worlds appears right in front of his eyes like a monumental door, a crack that goes up and down. When the crack opens, the man has to slide through it. It is hard to see on the other side of the boundary. It is windy like a sandstorm. The wind whirls around. The man then must walk in any direction. It will be a long or a short journey depending on his willpower. A strong-willed man journeys shortly. An undecided weak man journeys long and precariously. After this journey the man arrives at a sort of plateau. It is possible to distinguish some of its features clearly. It is a plain above the ground. It is possible to recognize it by the wind, which there becomes even more violent, whipping, roaring all around. On top of that plateau is the entrance to that other world, and there stands a skin that separates the two worlds. Dead men go through it without a noise, but we have to break it with an outcry. The wind gathers strength, the same unruly wind that blows on the plateau. When the wind has gathered enough force, the man has to yell and the wind will push him through. Here his will has to be inflexible too, so that he can fight the wind. All he needs is a gentle shove. He does not need to be blown to the ends of the other world. Once on the other side, the man will have to wander around. His good fortune would be to find a helper nearby, not too far from the entrance. The man has to ask him for help. In his own words, he has to ask the helper to teach him and make him a diablero. When the helper agrees, he kills the man on the spot, and while he's dead, he teaches him. When you make the trip yourself, depending on your luck, you may find a great diablero in the helper who will kill you and teach you. Most of the time, though, one encounters lesser brujos who have very little to teach, but neither you nor they have the power to refuse. The best instance is to find a male helper, lest one become the prey of a diablera who will make one suffer in an unbelievable manner. Women are always like that. But that depends on luck alone, unless one's benefactor is a great diablero himself, in which event he will have many helpers in the other world, and can direct one to see a particular helper. My benefactor was such a man. He directed me to encounter his spirit helper. After your return, you will not be the same man. You are committed to come back to see your helper often, and you are committed to wander farther and farther from the entrance until finally one day you will go too far and will not be able to return. Sometimes a diablero may catch a soul and push it through the entrance and leave it in the custody of his helper until he robs the person of all his willpower. In other cases, like yours, for instance, the soul belongs to a strong-willed person and the diablero may keep it inside his pouch because it's too hard to carry otherwise. In such instances, as in yours, a fight may resolve the problem, a fight in which the diablero either wins all or loses all. This time she lost the combat and had to release your soul. Had she won, she would have taken it to her helper for keeps. But how did I win? You did not move from your spot. Had you moved one inch away, you would have been demolished. She chose the moment I was away as the best time to strike, and she did it well. She failed because she did not count on your own nature, which is violent, and also because you did not budge from the spot on which you were invincible. How would she have killed me if I had moved? <laughs> she would have hit you like a thunderbolt. 
but above all she would have kept your soul, and you would have wasted away. What is going to happen now, Don Juan? Nothing. You won your soul back. It was a good battle. You learned many things last night. Afterward we began to look for the stone I had hurled. He said if we could find it we could be absolutely sure the affair had ended. We looked for nearly three hours. I had the feeling I would recognize it, but I could not. That same day in the early evening Don Juan took me into the hills around his house. There he gave me long and detailed instructions on specific fighting procedures. At one moment in the course of repeating certain prescribed steps I found myself alone. I had run up a slope and was out of breath. I was perspiring freely, and yet I was cold. I called Don Juan several times, but he did not answer, and I began to experience a strange apprehension. I heard a rustling in the underbrush as if someone was coming toward me. I listened attentively, but the noise stopped. Then it came again, louder and closer. At that moment it occurred to me that the events of the preceding night were going to be repeated. In a matter of a few seconds my fear grew out of all proportion. The rustle in the underbrush got closer, and my strength waned. I wanted to scream or weep, run away or faint. My knees sagged. I fell to the ground, whining. I could not even close my eyes. After that I remember only that Don Juan made a fire and rubbed the contracted muscles of my arms and legs. I remained in a state of profound distress for several hours. Afterward, Don Juan explained my disproportionate reaction as a common occurrence. I said I could not figure out logically what had caused my panic and he replied that it was not the fear of dying, but rather the fear of losing my soul, a fear 